Hi there, and welcome to TrailerCast. I am Elise Snipes, your host, and am here just to continue to chat with you regarding the human experience. And sometimes that means I use a story from my own life or something that um, I witness as a mother or as a therapist. Um, I don't know, just mainly as a human being that's also like trying to do this thing. And also often as I try to heal my own family of origin story, my own experience of what it's meant, my timeline, what it's meant for me to be here on earth. And in that unveiling, like in the vulnerability of sharing stories, I'm, I really want to invite you to investigate your own story, right? So it's not just like, listen to my journal. <laughs> it's like, what's up in your story? Could you hear some of the questions I ask a client, my partner, my children, myself? And could you ask yourself some of those questions? Are those questions that apply to you? Are there things that you're like, ah, I didn't think of it that way. I haven't, I haven't thought about it like that. So if I really rewind this thing back to the very beginning of TrailerCast, um, I really wanted to fling wide open the door for people to be able to have access to the to the beautiful like tapestry of what happens in the therapeutic relationship if you haven't ever been in it, right? If you haven't gone in the door to therapy, or maybe you have and it hasn't been a good fit, or maybe you did when you were young, or maybe you were you did it because you were in crisis, but you haven't like been for for this, for what I'm talking about. Then I want you to understand what it sounds like. I want you to know like what it smells like. I want you to have a, an experience of the aha and that we would also know that this can happen anywhere. You listening here, you walking, you living, you parenting, you working, you meditating, you sleeping. All of those are times when we are welcomed into, how can I say it, like, like divine knowing to awareness, to I got that lightning bolt of, oh my goodness, I, I get it now. I see it, right? And so that's what we're doing. We're just out here walking each other home, out here trying to figure it out, sharing tips, <laughs> stories, and being connected. Uh, last week, I got to share a conversation with my friend Hillary. Hillary and I um, have been able to share in a lot of life together. And while our experiences are diverse, um, there's been a beautiful thread in getting to hear and support her journey into motherhood. And I opened up last week's podcast talking about voice and choice and then realized that I, there's a lot more I want to say on that. So if you didn't listen, feel free to go back. It's a beautiful conversation. And what I love about those trailer cast conversations is that it's just like two people chatting, like unfiltered, like it's... It's a clearly a very raw, unedited process of just like, hey, let's talk. Let's catch up because I want you to hear it as it is. I don't, I don't want these, these um, podcast episodes to feel scripted. <laughs> it's like, they're just, it's just us, right? Um, the way it opened, if you didn't listen yet, is the experience of what happens in trauma, like what's actually going on and when I reflect on my own experiences and then the lovely people that I have been able to sit across from as a therapist, the dominant things that, that tend to be 
that are taken, I'd say, during a traumatic experience are choice and voice, okay? And again, really broadening the definition around trauma as being something that is, has been anything less than nurturing for you. Okay. And, and that still lingers, right? Like there's plenty of things that were not nurturing in my life, but I don't recall them. It's not because they weren't traumatic. It might be because they're not, they're just not registered, not registering for me. So they might not be included, but there are plenty of things that when I really look at that I've discounted and been like, oh, well, that wasn't that bad. Or it wasn't as bad as my other trauma, or it wasn't like this, or maybe it was my fault, or maybe I asked for it. Right. And those things that I dismiss that maybe technically a little T trauma or just the cognitive defense of protecting myself from how bad things have actually been. Um, we discount trauma. And so the reason we brought in the definition is to help you consider that there might be things that you've been writing off that actually count. There might be things that I have said are fine now that actually aren't. And the reason I know that is because they keep showing up. And when we think about our role, the, the way that I, would, that I see it is that I am here to heal the generational patterning, wounding, and script of my family, to transmute that, to take that in, and to then live into a new story. And so the things that keep appearing, right, are here for my good. The things that keep like, oh, why haven't I figured, why haven't I gotten over that yet? Why is that still happening? Those things, that rub, those are here for my good. They're arriving for my good so that I could recognize them and move to resolution so that it's not just something that I am through, but that my daughter won't have to then pick up. Okay. Uh, we cover a lot of that information actually in my radical motherhood class. And so if you, which would actually be fun just to do it as a, just a radical class. Um, but we talk through what, like the, the points in the, in those primary relationships that you're like, oh, I'm driving, I'm driving myself nuts. They're driving me nuts. I cannot. The things that were like, ah, every worst version of myself is there. And then examining what that's about and what else that's about. And what else that's about? And how far back does that go? And, and, and who really is that? I'm going to flush that out again a little bit. So when, we, I'll just give you a straight up example. When my daughter, so a couple years ago, my daughter, my beloved daughter, um, was going through a, an extreme phase of really not wanting to go to bed at a time where I was like, please, dear God, go to bed she would get really angry. And when someone is angry, I tend to shut down. And I'm realizing this as I'm hiding behind in, I, in our bedroom. I'm like hiding on the other side of the door because I'm like, oh, I cannot tonight. While she screams at me from the other side of the, of the room. And while I'm sitting on the other side of the door listening to my daughter wail, I'm like, uh, what, almost like, what am I doing? Like I could almost see this bird's eye perspective of like, Elise, you are a grown ass woman. <laughs> the adult in this relationship you're hiding what's going on what's going on and so what what was happening obviously is that for, there were the messages to me around anger were anger is not safe 
if someone's angry, someone's going to get hurt. And I immediately, if I felt threatened or someone was angry, I like become like eight years old, maybe, maybe younger, maybe four, really young. And it would make sense for a four-year-old, maybe an eight-year-old to hide, right? Um, the difference is, and that's what happens in trauma, you slide down your, timeline, your trauma timeline. So when something now sends you down your timeline, that's a pretty like big cue to think, oh, I'm actually in a trauma response right now as I hide from my daughter in my bedroom. What I'm doing is also perpetuating the cycle of she's abandoned in her anger. Anger is not safe because clearly mom's hiding. Um, it, it, like I was creating a whole other wound around anger instead of, and so, so that was my work. That was my invitation into radical motherhood was um, the things that are appearing what might be the most frustrating part of my day when I got under what was happening and what was going on and who Eden was in that moment, how she felt, I felt like she was my mom. I felt like she was my dad. I felt like she was my sister. I felt, I was like, ah, I'm so, I don't know what to do. Um, and she's not, she's Eden. So I have to de-roll her from the way my trauma is, is characterizing her as these people she's not. And I'm also taking myself and putting myself as way young without the tools or resources to be able to know what to do. And I'm, I'm perpetuating the story that anger is not safe. So sidebar, taking the time to investigate that and then ask the question, Elise, what in, within you needs to be healed? Not what's the behavioral intervention for your daughter? Not, what did I do wrong today? Not, maybe it was sugar, maybe it was dinner, maybe it was, we should have started bedtime earlier. I'm not focusing all of that looking at Eden. I'm looking at how and what is looking to be healed within me so that I could open the door. Going through that process, it's probably a whole other podcast episode, but there were memories that showed up for sure. And ironically, actually me being on the other side of a door. And it was like, okay, so what did I need in that moment? Is there a way I could offer that repair to myself? Or was it enough just to have the memory and say, damn, at least that did happen. That was really scary. That was really abusive. That is what that was. I have more language now. I'm an adult, right? It's not just a bad night. <laughs> it's not just a, an accident when someone's that mad. Okay, so there was some narrative work there, the language I might have used, or maybe it was pre-language and there were just the feelings I had of hide, right? What's my instinctual response? So the invitation to my own work became my responsibility. I get to do that. I get to, to, I get, to get that healing for myself, the younger versions of me and me now. So fast forwarding, I'm now like, all right, I can see what's, what was in me was unfinished, raw. And no wonder my reaction was so intense. No wonder her reaction was intense. I now felt like I was able to open the door. This is not in the same night, BTW. This is like months of, of like me being afraid and hiding and her losing her mind. And, you know, oh, I could just cry thinking about it and feel nauseous. It was so much so much. When I did the work of returning to the younger version of me that was showing up in those moments, 
came into my adult self, which is what the healing journey looks like, is I'm now myself here now, resourced and available to here now. I'm not in my old house on the other side of the door from my dad, right? I'm here now. I'm Eden's mom now. So I'm able to open the door. I'm able to sit next to her. That was what I thought for me felt like the repair would be to be present rather than to flee. So sometimes it's just opposite action. I wasn't solving. I wasn't telling her anything. I just sat with her while she raged. And then when she was done, then she would crawl in my arms. And then I would hold her. And then she'd be tired and ready for bed. I share that not to tell you that I'm a great parent because I was the parent who was hiding in a room, you know? Um, I tell you that because I, I am sensitive to the amount of intervention we apply to our children because we don't know what to do and how many things we are trying when we're looking at them. Now, that's not to say that our kids don't need all the structure and reinforcement and blah, you know, all the things we know we do know are good for kids, consistency and clarity and communication and all the things we want to model for them, boundaries and language and blah, 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 blue. Um, I'm talking about the thing that continues to be what we would say the problem or the child that's the problem, you know, or the, or the person in your life who's the problem, um, who you can't stand like, or, you know, what's the thing? So what is that? Looking at our responses, looking at what that has to do with that's reappearing here now for our good to be healed so we can change the story. Um, Does Eden still lose her mind at bedtime sometimes? Totally. But it's not about um, anger anymore. It's just about like, yeah, sometimes you lose your shit. Great. So do I. Yeah. But I'm not I'm not flooded and hiding She has a mom who's able to, um, I usually say like kind of be the jetty for those crashing waves. Like I, my job is just kind of to sit there sometimes, just be the jetty, let the waves crash. Um, I I don't need to get bigger. I don't need to get smaller. I'm just going to be consistent and be the jetty and her anger waves are just, they might thrash. Um, and then there'll be what's next. So again, little window of snippet into my life, (laughs) um, And what trauma can look like, right? So actually putting Eden to bed was traumatic. And the invitation to my younger self was sitting right there instead of focused treatment on child. Okay, tangential. All that to say, um, when, if we look at that example of that piece around what was happening when I was younger, the original trauma or the point of entry, that's kind of how I like to consider it. When that, when the point of entry, when that wound first came in, okay, I had a loss of choice, right? And have power. I wasn't choosing this to happen to me. I was scared out of my damn mind. Um, and a loss of voice. I was young. I did, I, I, I didn't, I had no words because I was scared. So when those two are absent, Getting those need to be reinstated in order for the trauma to, to reduce in its activation, size, presence, disruption, and all those things. So a way to take the trauma and allow it to become just a memory rather than a traumatic memory, it can still be, I can look back now and I'm like, 
oh yeah, no, that was still, I was still abusive. That was still a very abusive scene, but I don't feel like I need to go run and hide. That's the difference. It doesn't mean that now I'm like, oh, I get it. I'm a parent. I understand why he threw me against the wall like that. No, I think I see who was in error, <laughs> who was not taking, not taking, not doing a million things, but I lost voice and choice. Now as an adult, when I come back into, it is my choice if I talk about that memory. I know what was my choice and what wasn't. So I can clearly separate myself from feeling like it was my fault. There's nothing I did to earn that, deserve that at all. There's nothing I could have done to warrant that type of treatment. The voice part comes in unlocking my freeze response. So getting to have language, getting to say something, instantly I feel like I'm in a little, I'm like, okay, cool, right, okay, I have something to say about that. And in order to use our voice, we have to be able to think. In order to be able to think, then we're not in a place of that hyper um, cortisol adrenaline response. I'm able to actually think about it, say about it. Voice and choice. Let me give you another example. And I swear this isn't just like, let me mine the dredges of all the awful things that have happened to me, okay? I just, I just, I want to give a variety of examples because I, I, it'll help us all kind of get in the pool together here, okay? Another dominant place where we lose voice and choice is around grief. So um, when I think about when my brother was, my brother was in a skateboard accident in 2006 and on November 9th, and that was, well, anyway, um, he was on life support for until the 21st when ultimately, um, we were, there was an ethical committee that had to be involved in the ruling around if he had any signs of life. Um, and he didn't, we were at that point able to make the decision to pull life support and to go through the process of um, donating his organs because he was a like perfectly healthy 20-year-old specimen who was just like the most beautiful human on earth, my personal opinion, obviously. So he was able to donate um, almost everything. And he was also a donor of his own accord. All that to say, one of, you know what? I still think it's the most devastating thing that's happened to me. Like when I, I, I do, I, I still, and I look back and I gloss over and like, that was the worst thing that's ever happened. And obviously there's no choice when someone's dying. There's a total loss of power. And also that I didn't get to have, a, I didn't feel like I get to have a say. I didn't get to like, um, I didn't get to say, I didn't get to, I didn't get to have a say in how it went or, you know, there's just so much loss of control and power in the way you'd want what you want them to know and how you want it to go. And then, of course, there's all the secondary-ish that comes up with the way every other family member responds to a trauma like that. So now there's all these secondary fallouts. You know, my, you know, I'm going to say it because it's my podcast. Um, but my, like, evil stepmother, who I don't even call her that, I just call her my dad's wife because she's the fucking worst, um, just made the most jacked up call ever during that time and had her daughter 
um, sleep in my brother's room when there's an extra bedroom and also my bedroom. And I begged her, please don't have anybody sleep in there. I mean, I, I wanted to put my face in his sheets. You know what I mean? My brother's fucking dying and I don't want anything touched in his room. I want to have a say, right? Don't touch it. Don't disrupt it. And she completely violated what I wanted and put her daughter in, in Chase's bedroom. And it, like it broke, it it uh, fractured something literally in my brain. My whole spirit was just like, what in the actual F? I'm telling you that because that wasn't the grief, but clearly that was traumatic and a part of the loss of voice and choice. When I think back about those memories, I can still be disturbed. Oh my God, and am I? Um... And I understand that what I need is to be able to come back into some semblance of voice and choice, some semblance of being able to reconstruct a memory and find out at least what do you need. So with that, it's like I've written many a letter and burned it and um, said exactly what I wanted to say because I just shut down after that. I just shut down. I never went back to their house again. I never I never spent the night with them ever again. Um what I would have wanted, how I would have wanted to have unleashed and been angry because angry would have actually been a really healthy response to that scenario. And I didn't, I shut down, right? Cause anger wasn't safe for me. I just, I just went in to myself. So and to reinstate voice for me in that time would have been to step in and be like, to be mad and to tell her and to, and to be, to express myself, not to be stuck. So That's just the secondary piece. The other piece when I think about the actual injury of losing my brother is um, what things would I like to be able to have some choice in now? The way I talk about him, the way I tell my kids his stories. Um, We named my first son Isaac Chase, the way we keep his name alive. Uh, The way we, you know, I like, I just love imagining like, what would he be doing right now? And I see his friends around town still and I'm like, oh, oh, he'd be doing that or he'd be, oh, I wonder if he'd be married. I wonder if he'd have kids. I wonder what they'd look like. You know, I, I let myself go to the imaginal to see like, whoa, you know, and then I let him know. I, I, I wish I was seeing you like that. I wish I, I just, I wish and I wonder and I let myself have some choosing and how I imagine rather than just the really scary images of when he was in the hospital. I don't want those to be the only things that are, that are left. And then the, that plays all the way back into voice as well, is when I get to tell my kids his stories, when I get to remember them myself, when we get to go visit his bench in town and honor his life. Does that take away the trauma of losing my brother? Nope. No, it doesn't. I'd give everything. I'd give everything. If he was here, I would give it all. I would give so much. Um, I, I mean, I, I miss him every day. And, you know, I've thought about this recently that um, part of the reason his death impacted me so hard is because that was still a pri- my primary relationship. You know, he had just turned 20. I had just turned 22. Um, our parents were not obviously like super parental. He was a primary relationship for me and a source of 
kindred spirit. Like he was, um, I was, I don't know if I, I maybe had just started dating Jesse. So like, I didn't have like, I was dating Jesse, but I didn't have, I wasn't married. I didn't have my own kids. Like it was still like siblings were the dominant relationship of going into our future. So to lose him in the time when we were just launching into adulthood and building, um, ourselves out of the wreckage of our childhood to lose him then it was shattering I lost like my future I lost this this my partner my person who understood my history and it, it I can't go I can't even I can't even communicate the devastation so no it's still tra- it's still a trauma and I'm able to go back to the moments, to some of the injuries and sit with more presence than I was able to when I was in shock. And so sometimes for me, the reinstatement is my ability to be present with the story itself. So not have to skip over a detail because I feel like I'm going to break down. But to be able to linger in his memory and to stay That's huge for me, that I can grieve my brother without losing my mind. I remember thinking I'm not, I I don't know if I'll ever be able to come. I thought I was losing my mind. I felt like the grief was so much that I was going to be sucked in, um, that I would, I mean, that, that I would be catatonic and not be able to function and that I would never, like, I thought I should be in an asylum. That was truly how devastated I felt. Like, I felt like I was going crazy because my brain couldn't accept the information. So to hear where I am now helps me understand that sometimes the work of healing our trauma isn't to reduce the devastation. It's to be able to have the power of being present for as long as I want, as often as I want, or not. I get to have some choice in how I have an experience when I'm sad, I let myself be sad when I'm still, when I'm pissed. Cause I, I, I am still mad has been now that I'm recovering the safety and just strength that can come from being mad. That's a part of the grief cycle, that anger part that actually I'm like, Oh my gosh, there was rage in my grief that had been repressed. And that's where I've been most recently with his, with grieving chase is, um, I'm so mad. I'm just mad. I'm so mad that I don't know his wife, that I don't have, I don't, I'm not playing with his kids. I'm pissed. I didn't know all the things that his death would rob from our future. I just didn't, I didn't even know all the things that were yet to be, to grieve. So that is how I think of it like a merry-go-round, right? And so like all the different stages of grief, that shock, that anger, bargaining, denial, um, sadness, you know, all the despair, the different, the different ways that that shows up. And then ultimately, you know, you're supposed to hit acceptance. And, and I think again, like beyond acceptance really is presence. And that's just a merry-go-round though, just kind of keeps going. So there's been times like, obviously like I can remember when Chase had first passed, I would still go to call him. So that was, I was clearly not in acceptance. I was still in denial. My brain just didn't understand that I wasn't, he wasn't on the other end. Right. So now I know that I can't call him 
So there's a little bit more reality based, a little more acceptance. But even in that space, it didn't mean that I knew how to be present with the pain. So as the merry-go-round comes, sometimes it's sadness that appears for me. Sometimes it's anger. Sometimes I still bargain, you know, like I'll ask for a sign. Chase, show me you can hear me. Ah, you know, show me that you, you know, you know, that you see my kids. You know, sometimes I'm just still begging heaven for a little glimpse of him. All that to say, I want for there to be a homecoming to ourselves when we consider the work of our lives. So reinstating voice and choice allows us to come into a state of presence with what has been. I can look at it all and say, this is what has happened and I am me. These are the things that have occurred and I am me. I am here. It is now. I can ask myself the question by, by uh, going into different roles. Not I want to be able to role shift into, into narrator. I mentioned that last time too. Like not just being the person that, the, that these dramas and tragedies happen to, but um, being able to shift into a place of neutrality, into a place of witness, into a place of inquisition and knowing. You know, the narrator's voice in a book is so crucial to the way the story is told. And then, of course, there's the perspective, right? You know, when we're stuck in the role of, of my life is happening to me, and we're not able to see the whole page, the narrator knows, knows. And so I believe that that's part of how we move out of our trauma is learning to have some of that fluidity in taking a different role, learning to shift out of that space and into this space and practicing um, getting a little distance from the thing that has happened, being able to be curious about it rather than stuck in it, stuck to it, untangling some of those pieces that feel so sticky and confusing and, and depressing and all the, all the things that come along with, with being hurt. And then because we're here now, the adult, being able to actually get to be the one who gets to be responsible for our healing. I get to, it's my right to feel better. How's how, I mean, that to me, I'm like, that's the coolest thing ever. It's my right. Just because those things happen doesn't mean I have to resign myself to a lifetime of like, I don't need to wear black for the rest of my life. My grief won't look like that. I get to decide how I do. (laughs) You get to decide how you describe yourself, how you define yourself, where you are in the story. You get to do that work. That is your right. And that's how you actually come into reinstating yourself in the story. I choose. I have a say. It went down like this. This was my part. This was their part. This is what happened. This is what I'm doing now. I need a hug. I need to throw something. I need to cry. I need to run. I need to open the door. I need to write the letter. I need to give myself permission to be pissed. I need to forgive. Look, it's a, it's a variety. It's not a one size fits all that trauma recovery looks like this or moving on looks like this or acceptance looks like this, right? Acceptance for me and some of my healing, like I shared, has been learning how to be pissed. 
Sometimes healing looks like doing the very thing that, I, that should have been done originally and gets to be done now because I'm here now. So that's my, that, those are my rambling thoughts and stories and tidbits for you is what is reappearing? What continually emerges for you that is longing to be healed because everything is coming up for your good so you don't have to feel that way anymore? So you don't have to do that anymore. So you don't have to pass this down. You get to. That's the, I'm not joking. I'm like, wow, look at that. Look at us out here, us adults. <laughs> we get to have a voice. We get to have a choice. We get to revisit the stories of our life from a position of strength and courage and power and resource, we get to grieve to completion. We get to witness to completion. Every one of these things, you guys, everything is moving towards complete resolution. Not so they are erased from our timeline, but so that we can see them as they are, so we can be present to them without being devastated, sucked in by them. So what is it for you? <laughs> Text message. <laughs> um, what are the things that are standing out for you that is the rub? Evaluate it. Think about it. Or don't think about it too hard. Just know it, you know? What hurts? You can choose something that's occurring now. You could choose like the thing that happened to you that you like still just can't get over. What would choice look like there? What would voice look like there? What do you know now? What do you have to say now and how loud do you want to say it? What do you need? Do you need support? Do you need to be heard? Do you need to be witnessed or seen? Do you need to change something? Do you need to set a boundary? What do you need? What is it, what is it that you need when you know that you have a right to your own healing, a right to feel good, a right to be able to let those things fit back in the way they should without them continually oppressing or interrupting you. Those are my thoughts. I would love, love to know where this lands for you. Let me know. You can email me, you can DM me. Um, if you're interested in doing a small group around this, um, I'm wanting to connect with a small group where we just process through stuff like this, where we would, we would meet on good old Zoom and we get to connect based on like, okay, yeah, here, here's what it is for me. Help me walk through that, Elise, or help me figure out what that would look like. Just a general process group, no agenda, just time for us to meet together and, and, and learn and ask questions and you know be in that messy middle together. So if that's interesting, please as well, you can visit all those things at radicalwellness.co. Um, or just hit me up and I can help you out with all of that. To this week, may you look bravely 
May you trust yourself. May you be secure in your right to healing. May it feel good. May it feel good. Cheers. Cheers.